Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Satanta College, Dr. Liam Hennessy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 143 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm delighted to get on a legend of the game in Dr. Liam Hennessy. So given Liam's position at Satanta College as a director, we naturally speak about Satanta College and where it fits in the kind of overall educational picture here in the UK. So Liam has also has vast experience working with uh, some really high level athletes from a number of different sports golf being one of them. So we discuss uh, his work with uh, Podrick Harrington um, and a number of other golfers that he was actually in Spain or Portugal or something when we spoke um, on the job. So we speak about his work with the golfers. So we also speak about technology and also the ever popular hamstring problems in team sports. The methods are many, principles are few. And methods may change, but principles rarely do. So by applying basic principles, of which the fundamentals are the most important, progress slowly, in extremes lie danger, and and go back to mobility and stability on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Just before we get into the episode with Dr. Hennessy, just want to say a massive thanks to two of the sponsors today in Coach Me Plus and Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard. So if you don't know who Coach Me Plus are, Coach Me Plus are a athlete management system who are based on the east coast of the United States of America. So if you are looking for a solution to bring all your data into one place, into one easily manageable place, make sure you check out Coach Me Plus at coachmeplus.com and on Twitter at coachmeplus. Also, if you're looking at an eccentric hamstring monitoring system, make sure you check out the guys at Vald Performance and have a look at the Nord board. And they can be found at valdperformance.com and on Twitter at Vald Performance. So I hope you enjoy the chat with Liam Hennessy and enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Dr. Liam Hennessy, who is the director of Satanta College. So welcome to the podcast, Liam. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure. Nice. No, good to have you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of background on you and maybe a little bit about what you've done in the past and what you're currently doing? Okay. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, look, um, I've been involved in sport coaching for over mm, 30 years now. Um, I think I've been involved except for a little bit of time teaching and in a hospital working in a, um, a hospital department. I've probably spent um, most of my life involved in sport in one role or another. Starting out in, I suppose, as an athlete myself, where I pole vaulted, believe it or not, I'm probably one of the smallest pole vaulters that ever existed, but <laughs> I did try to, I did try to uh, motivate myself by saying I was better off the top of the pole than I was on the ground. So, but um, regardless of that, that led me to a scholarship in the States, Rob, where uh, it was in the late 70s and I was trying to make Moscow 
and the only way of getting to Moscow to the Olympics to compete was to take drugs. So this was something I wasn't prepared to do. And in my reflection on all of that, it brought me into the library in, in New Mexico, literally, where I came across uh, modern track and field, uh, Fred Welch and the early publications of Michael Yeses. And these led me to get really, really interested in how can we progress athletic performance and how can I improve and stay away from drugs and doping and yet fulfill my potential. So it opened up a challenge for me and that was 1979. So ever since then, I've been trying to learn, trying to listen, trying to read, trying to experiment and above all, apply in practice, Rob. Apply in practice and that's what I've been doing as a coach a coach, a track and field coach, a jumps coach, a sprint coach initially, PE teacher, and then completed a couple of master programs in sports science and nutrition, and then went on to a PhD in applied perform applied physiology. So all of that was for for one reason to know more and to be able to coach and help um, help influence better performance through natural scientific methods. So that's what I've been doing and currently now um, I'm spending more, all my time between um, Satanta College and the University of South Wales, our, our educational partners. And our programs are all about supporting coaches at all levels, be they amateur, be they professional. Um, we run programs of study from short courses right up through undergrad degree to postgrad degree. And um, our professional master's program is a new one. It's going very well. We're excited by it. And we're hopefully expanding with our educational partners at the University of South Wales shortly to offer all these programs that we currently offer out of Satanta College as well. So my role is in education, but I still am always with my athletes. And they varied over the years from football, that is soccer, to rugby, to Gaelic games, to athletics, and golf. So they're my main sports of involvement, um, historically and even currently. And uh, I'm always excited. I mean, if, if, I, if I couldn't coach, I think there would be a big gap or yawning gap in my life. Um, so rather than give the impression that I'm a scientist at heart, no, I'm a coach at heart uh, and a coach that really, really wants to help people have longevity as opposed to just be able to perform next weekend. And I think that's that's something that's become more and more important to me as the years have rolled on, is assisting my athletes or teams or whoever I'm working with to have a far longer term and a bigger picture about what they do. So that's me um, in a long-winded, winding kind of a <laughs> response, Rob. No, that's good. That's all good. Um, you talked a little bit about drugs at the start with trying to get to Moscow. What, how do you think that aspect of, of track and field and athletics has changed over the years? Yeah, I think it's gotten worse, Rob. And um, I've, no, yeah. I've no problem saying that. It's more sophisticated now. It's become more, um, I won't say systematic. I think it's become more random and individualized, actually. It was systematic where countries and associations were systematically doping. Um, that's more difficult to do now because athletes are far more tuned into, well, 
look, you'll find out easily. I mean, we, we have known about the Eastern Bloc systematic programs, but be wrong to think that it was only Eastern Bloc systematic programs that were in place in the 70s and 80s. So I think the change is taking place in that it's become more individual uh, driven uh, with more money and more resources available. You know, individual athletes can eke out and seek out corrupt, um, you know, <laughs> I suppose biochemists and uh, and get what they want to get. And there's a lot more knowledge and information there now about how you can do that. So I think that it's a real challenge for the anti-doping agencies, for the sports governing bodies, now more than ever, Rob. So, yeah, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm, I'm not being naive on this. I'm just saying in the 70s when, you know, Doping or, or drug use was there, it was, but it's even more sinister now and more pervasive, I would think. Mm -hmm. another, another thing that you mentioned was your foreign to uh, PE teaching. How long were you a PE teacher, Liam? I trained as a PE teacher um, in when I came back from the States because I had okay. to come back and I made the decision not to be part of that program. Uh, so I finished with my undergrad degree in PE. So I taught for about seven, eight years. And in while I was doing that as well, I completed a couple of master's degrees in sports science and nutrition. But that PE was, was kind of, um, again, it was, it, it was, it's a great area to be involved in. You know, youth, it was secondary school PE teaching. But, but I always felt that our curriculum was too, was too restraining um in terms of what it was meant what it could do um i still believe that physical education is one of the more noble <laughs> subjects to pursue uh even now more than ever but i have particular views on it i think it may have lost its way in terms of what it was uh, originally uh, set up to do um and there are far more challenges now for for those involved in the industry than there used to be in terms of you know competing attracting the interest of the of the youth be that youth from 12 to 18 whatever and i believe therefore there that's that's where sport and physical activity um probably has a, a wider appeal than physical education i think even the title note should be should be changed it should be um examined and see can we get far more appropriate physical activity related subject titles um, that reflect modern day kind of uh, demands. So that's my view on PE. Uh, mm. It's probably been undermined and should be a lot more uh, prominent, but isn't because it's got uh, lots of challenges both within and without. Yeah, I had a really good chat with um, Kelvin Giles, okay. who's obviously come through a very similar background in terms of being a PE teacher for a long time. He was obviously uh, quite outspoken on that side of things, um, but just just to move on, I'd, I'd just love to get your um, the background of Satanta College itself and why it was why it has become what it's become, and maybe what the, the gaps that it was trying to plug in the education system as you knew it at the time of its um, of its setup. Yeah. Um... I started in 2000 as director of fitness and performance director with the IRFU in rugby, and my you know it was one full time fitness coach back then, and 
two part-time coaches. And the remit, we hadn't won a, we hadn't won anything of significance for 15 years in Ireland in rugby. And the game had gone professional. Players were being paid, but they weren't acting or training professionally. So being paid doesn't mean that you are a professional. You have to you have to take on board all the all the kind of responsibilities that go with that. So we had a, a challenge, and ironically, one of the challenges we had was we, we needed to get good coaches, trainers. Now back then, strength and conditioning as a title really hadn't taken off in in, in Europe. We were aware of it from the state's point of view. And so early in the in the noughties, the term and the title strength and conditioning, we brought it into Irish rugby. Uh, but we also had to bring in um, international, how would I say, uh, coaches who had some experience in conditioning. And this, this was particularly an issue for us because we wanted to grow our own. Um, so we started what we called a certified conditioning program within the RFU in 2001, which was our education program to train up um, those involved in school, club, and the professional game, the new professional game. So it was a, an effort at going um, top down, bottom up, root and branch approach to giving the basic principles and outlining the methodologies of these principles that could be used to better prepare our players because we had to do something in, in, in from, from a, a world stage in rugby. Um, so a cornerstone of that was creating this educational pathway. And yeah, we kicked it off in 2001, 2002, and I think over 1,600 coaches have come through that from within Ireland, not only actually within the rugby, sport of rugby, but also several other sport coaches were always asking, look, could we join? Could we become part of this? Because it doesn't exist in our own sport. And eventually that led on to the formation of Satanta College 10 years ago, Rob. So we're on the go for 10 years. We now service World Rugby, a key partner of ours. You know, over 30,000 uh, coaches around the world have completed the, the basic co- programs, which is which is we're, we're delighted with and we want to grow that because it gives those coaches in far-flung countries, in Tier 2, Tier 3 countries, basic principles, but methods and guidelines of what you do when you meet a team or when you're trying to put a team together and just prepare them physically better for what the demands of the game are. And our programs have extended right up to, as I said earlier, master's programs. Um, we do undergrad online programs. And we've now launched our professional performance, a professional science um, master's program, which really is looking at the top end. It's looking at those who want to be leaders, those who want to move on and embrace technology with the softer skills, so to speak. So we have that as well. Um, so all that has grown, and in our relationship with other educational bodies, uh, like University of South Wales, plus our industry, um, all the, 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 the many technologies and companies involved in sport and sport associations as well, Premiership, uh, Premiership Rugby and Football Clubs uh, and the like are all, we, we, we're aligned with many on the basis of supporting their coach education programs. And that's still at the root of everything, Rob. It hasn't changed from day one. We, we want to bring better um, experiences eventually to the athletes and players, but through the coaching staff and support the coaching staff in their CPD and ongoing development. 
So Satanta College is still doing what I suppose we set out um, 18 years ago, or 17 years ago within rugby, just to support those at all levels of sport, not just team sports like rugby, but across um, virtually individual and, and team sports um, in their own, the coach, the coach education pathway. So thankfully, you know, we've grown, we've grown each year and continue to grow through our network of partners and educational uh, collaborations as well. So you mentioned now uh, a little about technology, obviously becoming um, a huge part of the practitioner and the researcher day to day. Do you think there's a, uh, do you think there's an over-reliance on the use of technology? Yeah, listen, I, I, I think we're in danger of having a lot of specialists who can use technology and who use it to make decisions without bringing the human context to that decision making. Technology is a serve, is like, how would I say, it's an adjunct. It's something that we should use to help us make better decisions. At the end of the day, we need to make decisions. The coach needs to. But if we rely completely on technology, on getting a green light to go, and I've seen many technologies giving green lights and players getting injured subsequently. And that's because the technology wasn't at fault at all, Rob. It was the inability of the user to interpret what the technology was telling them. And this is why I think we are slightly in danger of becoming over-reliant and being misled, therefore, by technology, simply because we're abdicating the responsibility of us interpreting and making decisions based on the information that we get from technology. But also, we need to bring back those old-fashioned coaching uh, approaches like the art and the craft of coaching. For example, I know systems that are being used where athletes and players are being put through perhaps readiness to train or readiness programs where the reliability of the test is very questionable and therefore the output from the technology is going to be very questionable. If the coach only stood back and had an athlete or a player focus and yeah, add in the technology, but really pay attention to the, the individual, not to the screen, not to the output. Yeah, use it eventually. Yeah, use it. Yeah, embrace it. Absolutely, but only embrace it once you've gotten to know it and not and appreciated the limitations of it as well. So yeah, go back to your question. I would be concerned that there could be an over-reliance on the input of technology into decision-making in sport, especially in the preparation of, of the athlete or the player, especially in the monitoring of the athlete or player. And I'd like to see far more softer skills being applied to the use of technology. Again, technology is wonderful, but it's in the hands of the individual that he can really grow and blossom or else it can become an issue. Now, as I said, it's not the fault of technology. It's the individual using it that needs to stand back and assess and reflect on how they're using it, how they're really, are they getting benefit from it or are they focusing too much on the outputs of technology and not using their craft or intuition, which they should be using an awful lot more. So how do, how do, going back to the education piece, how do educators 
teach that? Is that something that can be taught? That the soft skills, I mean. Oh yeah. Look, there's no better way of 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 teaching and picking it up than through experience. And this concept of mentoring, which I believe is something that we need to really do a lot better than we do. Um, look, we provide educational courses. We provide support programs for athletes through our undergrad and our postgrad programs. And we're, we're very happy with those because part of those, we, we never neglect the softer skills, the emotional intelligence that needs to be brought to any program of education. Um, but that is, again, something that, uh, if I was to put my hand up and say, um, how many coaches who may be listening to that have mentors? How many of them have somebody where they actually have a regular conversation about what they do on the basis that a mentor will draw attention to something that you or I, let's say, might have omitted because we're so focused down the microscope of of technology or or we're so involved emotionally in a situation. So the whole education process, we're very keen to stress, you do need somebody as a mentor. You need somebody that you can talk to. In any relationship, you need to have the ability to communicate. And the personal communication is, is crucial in the educational process. So can this be taught? Yeah, look, the softer skills that we need to be able to effectively use and employ principles, methods, and technologies are really, that's the magic sauce of coaching. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with uh, Liam Hennessy. Hope you're enjoying part one. So just wanted to say a big thank you to Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. And secondly, I just wanted to mention um, that I'm always looking for recommendations for guests of the podcast. So if there's anyone that I haven't had on which um, who has to come on, please feel free to fire, we- fire my way um, some recommendations of guests. Even if they've been on before and you want to hear from them again, um, at the end of the day, the podcast is just as much yours as it is mine, the listener. So please feel free to drop me a, an email or a Twitter message with recommendations for podcast guests. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Uh, more of the same from Dr. Hennessy in part two. So I hope you enjoy. Just to move on a little bit and just talk about something that came up a lot in a in a previous podcast that I did with um, Dr. Shield from uh, Queensland University of Technology, and that was hamstrings. And I know you've got um, a, st- a strong view on on um, what's going on with hamstrings and the the um, apparent increase in uh, in hamstring injuries across uh, across professional sport. Do you want to give us your your take on why you think that's happening? You know, the the ubiquitous hamstring is, as I call it, it's been with us forever. <laughs> and so it's something that we must appreciate. But I think what, and look, look, um, our, the studies show us that over the last 15 years in, in, in football, you know, there's an increasing hamstring incidence. You know, in other words, rates of injury of hamstring strain are going up year and year and year. And now look, Certainly, that's attributable to the changing nature of the sport and the game. So that's a factor that has to be factored in, the changing nature. But across all other sports as well, we're seeing in team sports, we're actually seeing a similar trend, Rob. And it has been very worrying. And often, and again, going back to our early points, often we can focus our attention away from perhaps what are the uncommon factors. And the uncommon factors 
but we know that they are real, are factors of fatigue, are factors of stress and strain in the etiology or the causation of, of hamstring strain injuries. So one point I always like to make is, I often hear people talk about prevention of hamstring strain or injuries. Well, in sport, there is no such thing as prevention in my books. All there is is injury risk reduction. And if we can seek to reduce risk, to reduce the incidence, we may never ever get rid of all hamstring injuries because they're very challenging. It's a very challenging area. But certainly I don't think that we're looking at what is facing us. If we looked at the athlete, we would see an awful lot more. For example, we know that there are modifiable and non-modifiable factors in hamstring strain. We know that the biggest factor is a previous injury. But as I always say, well, how did you get that first injury? You must have, something must have been happening that wasn't um, suitable, that the hamstring wasn't suited to or the system wasn't suited to. We know that age is also one of those non-modifiable factors. So allowing for those two, we have all these other modifiable factors as well, such as training load and workload. Fatigue is a huge factor associated with hamstring strain. Technology, by the way, in the last 10, 15 years, has linearly increased probably with the incidence of hamstring strain. Now, is that cause and effect? Certainly not, Rob, certainly not. But what it, what it tells me is that we're not using what we now know in terms of sports science, in terms of our technology use, to best effect. Because incidence, hamstring injury incidence is rising. And that's a challenge for us all. And I do believe if we go back to a more holistic view and approach of our, our players in terms of understanding them, in terms of understanding either intuitively or through better monitoring practices, their threshold levels of tolerance. But look, we finished a nice study there recently out of Satanta with um, Luke Jordan and Ronan Hogan for the GAA. And it confirms, I think, what other, other researchers are finding around the world is that in our desire to, I suppose, improve performance, we are mindful of thresholds of workloads. But I think those thresholds may be a lot higher than we've been giving our athletes and players credit for. For example, in that study from Luke and Ronan, they showed that dual players, now dual players, Rob, in Ireland are, are hurling and football players. They play both codes. Single code players would be just those who play hurling and those who play football. So the dual code player had a higher workload but a lower profile of injury risk compared to the single co-player. In other words, their tolerant, their workload levels on any given week were significantly higher than the single co-player, but yet they displayed less injuries. Now, it was a small cohort study, and we, we want to expand it. But others around the world are getting that sort of finding as well, that, look, if you make players more robust, now how you make them robust is the challenge, um, that they may be less likely uh, um, have less injury risk. But there are other factors as well that we've seen. Players inevitably have imbalances, and this is where, again, the technologies come into play, and we spoke earlier about forced X. We also use wearable technology now to give us a lot more insight about the factors relating to fatigue and at what stage is fatigue occurring during a given session or, or whatever. And there are some lovely studies there that tell us that, look, uh, uh, studies that, that show us that the kinematics and the kinetics change as fatigue in terms of the running, sprinting, acceleration um, posture 
as fatigue uh, is reached. And it's that association between fatigue and the onset of hamstring strain that's really of interest to us. And we're doing some research work in that and we'll hopefully do some more collaborative work with that with our partners in, in USW in Wales. Um, and it's particularly interesting. In other words, if you can, if you can either pull the player from reaching that threshold level or condition them better so that when they get into conditions of fatigue, we've seen hamstring injuries reduce as a result or in relation to that key factor of fatigue. So look, hamstring injuries are a challenge to us. It really is a disappointment that with the growth in technology and science and the massive amount of information that we have, that they are still rising. Um, and I do believe that a return to a more holistic overview of the individual, better monitoring that's individualized as opposed to just looking at the threshold levels of the team in general, but individualized are key elements in helping us reduce future hamstring strain injury risk. So a couple of questions uh, off the back of that. What, what does the research say um, happens maybe specifically to the hamstrings uh, under fatigue that potentially causes this this increase in, in injury risk? A group of uh, uh, out of uh, UK University, uh, a couple of studies in 2009 and 10, small, the lead author was small, and they, they investigated the changing kinematics, in other words, mechanics, when somebody is fatigued by having um, football simulation. And we've seen this over, over, over the decades. And when somebody is fatigued, they actually change in the way that they actually accelerate. Okay, there's a greater forward lean of the torso. Okay, and there's different flexions about the hip and the knee joint. And in other words, there's more of a clawing as the foot hits the ground. So the hamstring displays fatigue and reductions in range of motion. And that eccentric control then on the hamstrings, which is the mechanism most associated, I mean 80, 85% of hamstring strains occur through that eccentric strain mechanism as the foot is, as the lower foot is hitting the ground and that eccentric stretch that the hamstrings are undergoing. That seems to be the most common mechanism of strain. So these studies have linked that, um, that stage of fatigue with a changing gait, with a changing mechanical um, range of motion, body posture, and also reduction in hamstring uh, mobility at that stage. These are studies that have been there for nearly seven, eight years, and they've been poorly regarded, I think, by practitioners. So if we're conditioning, we always have this principle, Rob, in team sport. Let's condition the player to be able to operate under conditions of fatigue. In other words, minute 60 arrives in the football game or minute 70 arrives in the rugby game, you know, you see players being subbed on and off, in particular in rugby, simply because I think there's a far greater uh, understanding of fatigue and what it can do to someone in, in, in some sports compared to others. And so that's one way. But what about conditioning the player to be able to sustain their performance through within conditions of fatigue? So it goes right back to, are we assessing the athletes when they're fresh only, that is, when they're not fatigued, and should we be not assessing them for balance and imbalance when they're fatigued? And again, I go back to Daniel Cohen's four sticks. 
they now allow us to have athletes assessed after extensive or intense training sessions or match performance sessions or competitions very simply to find out what is the profile of landing and takeoff and we have 3D systems now that are wireless or markerless and, uh, and I know some of my good colleagues in the Premiership that are using these now to further find is there a changed player in terms of their kinematics and kinetics after match play or an intense training session where fatigue is the factor that has made these changes and if there is then well what can we do in our conditioning programs what can we do and one thing we can actually do is we can be we can use more assessing and testing and monitoring of players in a fatigue state that's one number two then we can mimic what those changes in kinematics and kinetics are to condition the player to be better able to tolerate those changes then. And you know, a funny old thing is that slight uphill running mimics the actual changed mechanics of the individual later in the game as well. But slight incline running, as in uphill running, a lot of that has gone out of our current methodologies and practices for conditioning team sport athletes. Um, I'm not saying that it's the only factor, I'm just giving an example. We have a lot of use now of eccentric kind of Nordic hamstring uh, exercises. Yes, they've been shown scientifically to reduce injury risk. But unfortunately, in some cases, uh, coaches and therapists are using them um, and prescribing an inordinate volume of them and uh, possibly the timing of them. You know, some, some, some coaches I've recently spoke to say, you know, they've seen programs where the athletes are warming up using, you know, high-load eccentric uh, exercises, which probably aren't a good idea in the immediate warm-up when you now go sprinting immediately afterwards. However, that's a debate. That's another debate we could have as to the order and sequence of what are meant to be preventative injury risk reduction type exercises. Um, hamstrings need to be conditioned but the whole system needs to be conditioned. And if we isolate the hamstrings as the only muscle to be conditioned and we overlook gluteal work, we overlook quadricep work in terms of mobility and activation, uh, or we overlook upper body connections through slings with the hamstrings, if we overlook those, we're being very narrow and siloed in our focus, Rob. So it's a great challenge, but it's one that I'm excited about. We're doing a, some research on it, and uh, we're excited about how we can use technologies to help us understand better what's going on in a fatigue condition. So just on the back of that, you mentioned obviously the work with, with Forstex and, and, and Dr. Cohen there um, and building a profile of, of uh, takeoff and landing. Do you just want to give us a little bit of a picture on what that looks like? I mean, Daniel did kind of go into a lot of detail with that, but it'd be interesting to see how it actually you actually interpret that and, and use it in the field with your with your guys yeah look simply put if you can imagine that you have a you have a takeoff and a land like in a counter movement jump and normally the procedure in in monitoring like that is an athlete turns up a player turns up in the warm-up their profile is established and they get a green light they're good to go because they're within five percent of their personal best or or whatever criteria that's applied for readiness to train However, we're missing a huge potential here. Are the same measurements being taken at the end of the session? 
so as to establish what's the profile like at the end of a session and are they the same as beforehand. So we're losing out on a lot of information that could help us, as I've said, address this issue of, of fatigue in terms of are we conditioning the athletes to be better able to perform under conditions of fatigue. So we've been taking measurements using the force deck that simply quantify is the ratio of balance between left and right the same as it was in the warm-up? Is it the same at the end of the session? And what we're seeing, and we have seen, and this is the great this is one of the great features of the force deck, it's dual play technology, is that there is a trend. We haven't published on this. We're just looking at it. We, we like what we're seeing, and it's very interesting. There is a trend that there's a greater reliance on landing on the unaffected limb versus the one that may be exposed to injury in the fatigue state. And I think Dr. Daniel has corroborated and published on this in relation to ACL injuries. In other words, in the fatigue state, in landing, the forces have been literally absorbed by the actual non-injured leg, thereby predisposing that, how would I say, that non-injured leg to a future injury, perhaps. So what we're seeing is we're, we're using the uh, forced X post-training, post-exercise, regardless of what sport it is just to see what the actual takeoff and landing balances are like and getting some interesting information. Now we're also combining it with wearable EMG like MyonTech, um, another group that we're very interested in, in collaborating with from Helsinki who have validated and have produced reliable surface EMG muscle group activation technology, wearable technology. And what we're seeing as well is that what we're getting now is both activation and kinetic measurements. And we're trying to work on both of those to see is there a connection? In other words, is there reduced activity in a certain muscle group and another muscle group has to pick up, has to take up the slack from that? And yeah, in some cases, for some individual athletes, that's exactly what we're seeing. In other words, after they have gone through a fatiguing multi-sprint interval, uh, short sprint interval session, we're finding that some muscles are just uh, switching off literally in their activation and other muscle groups have to pick up on that. Thereby now they're in that whole predisposition to injury um, time period. So we're getting a lot, a lot of interesting information by simply, Rob, using these instruments when the athlete is fatigued. Whereas traditionally the whole testing and assessment of an athlete was done when they were fresh only and when they were um, at the in order at the beginning of a session. Brilliant. So just again, just want to move on. And one final thing, I'd love to touch on your experience and um, I suppose current practice with the golfers. Obviously, you're out in um, sunny Spain at the minute, but what does your if you can give us a bit of an overview of your philosophy for your work with the with the golfers and the reason i ask that is because we've had i've only had one guy on the podcast so far over the last couple of years who actually discussed his work with golfers so to get from a pure kind of strength and conditioning point of view um of that 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 philosophy that athletic development philosophy would be um would be very interesting yeah rob great look 
you know, golf is one of my favorite sports. I've been involved in coaching my uh, golfers for over 20 years. Um, and you know, I'm delighted to be able to say that I'm still working with top elite golfers, including Paul Carrington, who, who I'm working with for over 20 years now. But I think something that's not appreciated is that golfers are actually elite athletes at the top level. You know, elite pro tour golfers are exceptional athletes. You know, they're the same as other elite athletes in their sports. Obviously, they share, I suppose, less of a homogenous, uh, I say, posture. Oh, sorry, sorry, um, somatotype. Golfers come in all shape and sizes, which is absolutely great. But one thing that they do share at the top end is phenomenal ability to generate torque and speed as they rotate. You know, um, uh, you know, very few, very few recreational golfers can can drive a ball with a club head speed of over 180 miles an hour, and that's what these guys do every day that they go out and perform. So they've got some hidden athletic traits that are not very visible often to the um, untrained eye, so to speak. And you know, one of the interesting things about golf is that we were doing using technology in golf 20 years ago that eventually became you that. That, that, that was used in team sport and individual athletic settings. So golfers, uh, the first 3D analysis that I ever did was uh, 22 years ago um, in, 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 in a group setting with golfers. So we're, we're talking about using technology and using science in golf perhaps more than we have in other team sports who are slower and later to come into the use of technology. So that's just a little background on it. But within within golf, I've always used a philosophy, which I think is very important, and maybe it, it, it certainly does have it does have um, um, context for other sports. And I call it festina lente. It's an old Latin saying of hasten slowly. So when you combine hasten and slow together, you get what athletic performance is about. Everybody wants to get there quickly. But if you can tinge it with that bit of patience, you'll get there better prepared. So that's a key philosophy. So that means let's not do multiple new exercises in the one session. Let's take them one by one and nail them. And let's, let's get the accumulation going in a nice gradual progression. The other thing is in extremes lie danger. Now, that's another philosophy we've applied, and I think it, where we can heed it, we're far less likely to injure the athlete, because when we do extreme things, be it a spike in workload, a sudden spike, or, again, as I said, a change in method or technique, well, you can expect injury to follow. It may not happen at that particular point, but don't be surprised if it follows shortly afterwards. Again, within golf, a huge issue and longevity in golf is, is of real interest to me um, simply because I think my players <laughs> those that I'm involved with are just getting older <laughs> and older <laughs> but mobility and stability are two key core uh, components of fitness in our approach so most of the, the, the work that I would do centers on daily mobility and stability and by the way it's not the same type of mobility and stability that it was 20 years ago for Podrick it changes. So variety needs to come in there. So the principle of variety needs to come in, but based on not using extreme methods um, or in extreme loads. 
Now, um, one of the interesting things as well is that golfers may not be associated with the traditional strength and conditioning methods like plyometrics, like the Olympic lifts, but certainly the golfers that I work with and certainly for, for the last 15, maybe 10, 15 years, these have become far more common training methods. Don't be worried or surprised, therefore, to see the golfer using derivatives of the Olympic lifts to be, to be engaging in plyometric type training, to be engaging in speed agility training. So ironically, that when we say, look, we look at the demands of the, of the, of the swing or the golf, well, we don't see um, agility or, 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 or linear acceleration, and we don't see you know, massive loads being moved overhead like you would in a snatch or whatever. But that's not the point, as you know. The point is that you're stimulating the neuromuscular system in a varied way and a constantly kind of progressive way as well. And that's partly why I say at the age of 46, Podrick is now able to swing his the club head speed faster than ever. Uh, you know, he's regularly clocking over 180 miles an hour now even though he had surgery at Christmas on, on C5, C6, uh, cervical spine surgery. Uh, having taken time out then and rehabbed, he was really able to kind of focus on the basics again. And by focusing on the basics, his speed returned, that is clubhead speed. So it's, it's probably another principle and part of the philosophy that, um, as again, I summed up by a great friend of mine, Alan Kelly, who was a great physio based in Dublin. He always said, methods are many, principles are few. And methods may change, but principles rarely do. So by applying basic principles, of which the fundamentals are the most important, progress slowly, in extremes lie danger, and, and go back to mobility and stability on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you you know, you'll be doing you'll be doing the golfers a great service, and ultimately, the goal is longevity, as opposed to because remember, longevity is what they are looking for. You can play golf into your fifties and sixties competitively, and maybe seventies and eighties recreationally, if not competitively. What other sport offers that for the for 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 the um, for the athlete? Uh, very few sports offer that. So it's a unique sport in that. But there are hidden athletic traits in the different shapes that you see. And while some of them may look a little more overweight than others, don't be fooled <laughs> by that. Don't be fooled by that mass. Actually, here's a good application of the point in extremes like danger. Those golfers that seek to lose weight quickly in the belief that they will look more athletic often lose their rhythm and balance in their swing and are thus now really uh, compromised. Those who gain weight quickly as well go through the same problems in their swing. So this is, again, a nice application of in extremes lie danger and also festina lente, hasten slowly. The body needs time to adapt to the subtle changes in balance that are associated with their swing uh, mechanics. And these are things, by the way, we can measure in 3D, and we've been measuring for, as I say, 20 years. And that's why we're able to say that, that when we see somebody losing weight quickly, their swing kinematics change. And change not for the better, but rather uh, problematically changing. And 
you've many examples of that, I think. I mean, we could name them, but yet it wouldn't be fair to name the golfers that have experienced those, those kind of issues. Uh, mainly through looking to change their body shape and weight too quickly. We've also established that there is a threshold or a kind of a minimum, minimum body weight, a minimum lean mass load that, and again, it has pertinence for other sports from speed, power sports, below which if you go, you really reduce your power outputs. And that could be a key factor in, in reduced performance. So we're very conscious that with our golfers that they maintain a lean body mass yeah, they can fluctuate a little bit up from that, but don't fluct, don't go below that. And that's an actual challenge as well. In a, in a society driven by cosmetics and how well you look, um, we are more interested in functional performance. Yeah, a little bit of cosmetics now and again doesn't doesn't doesn't. Do <laughs> but uh, says the, says the two people that haven't got the video switched on. I would say. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Liam. And I'm going to um, I'm going to round up there and just ask you to, where where can people get in contact with you? Where's the best place to keep up to date with what you've got going on? Yeah, log on to www.satantacollege.com. Um, there's lots of scope there for getting in touch with me or any of the guys or are, are looking at the programs we have. We're currently running an interesting one, by the way, on the latter point. Jason Glass from Canada is coming in um, at the uh, end of July, uh, beginning of August, Rob, to do rotary uh, performance, um, an interesting but very, very applicable uh, method of conditioning for all team sports, not just golf. Remember, every sport has rotary movements. If you want to pass a ball, if you want to kick or run, you're doing rotation. Um, so we, we, we promote and advertise um, colleagues, you know, individuals in the industry and that, uh, and we have a series of workshops over the summer, and they'll be extended into 2018 as well. So they're on our website as well for those who might be interested. And, and also, um, my, I, I'm not great at, at um, replying to emails or that or, or my phone, so... It's better to try and get in touch with me through um, through info at satanticollege.com or admin at satanticollege.com because I tend to be out more with my athletes than sitting in front of a computer or on the <laughs> phone, Rob. <laughs> are, you, are you on social media at all? No, Rob, I don't do that because I see the lads do that a lot and I just can't. I just don't know how they get the time to do that. Uh, I know it's very. <laughs> I know it's very, very kind of. I, you, you might think I'm a bit of a, a recluse. No, 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 it's all. But no, I just don't know. I've never. I'm not on Facebook. Not on Twitter. Don't know what they look like either. I love engaging <laughs> with technology, but that's got to be a four stack, or it's got to be an EMG system, or it's got to be a linear position transducer. That's the type of technology that I like to interface with, and make it meaningful nice. to the athlete. So. Um, Apologies for that. No, I, I don't do the thing. No, no, no. That's, that's absolutely fine, mate. And no, I appreciate that. Well, I'm going to let you go. Um, but first, I just want to thank you for giving up uh, an hour of your time to, to come and chat. Thank you, Rob. It's great. And look, we, we, we didn't have a look at each other here, but, but, but I'm sure we'll meet sometime. We'd love to have you over and, and, and come and see us over. And, uh, and by the way, down in Wales as well, we're involved with 
UAW, they're building an amazing center down there, you know, a full indoor uh, pitch size arena, strength and conditioning, um, coaching, science. We're going to have lots of hopefully great collaborations with them there. That may not be too far from you. That's down in uh, Tree Forest down there outside Cardiff. Yeah, it's not too far for me, mate. Not too far. But I'll um I'll let you go and uh and we'll definitely keep in touch and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dr. Hennessy. So got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. As always, if you're enjoying the content which has been put out on the, by the guests on the podcast, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player. Then you will automatically get downloaded each episode as it comes live each week. So thanks again for your continued support and I look forward to speaking to you soon.